Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today we are sitting down with a nutritionist, a women's health expert, someone who works as a doula and childbirth educator, someone with a passion for personal wellness and protecting the planet for future generations, podcast host of the future of food and a journalist coming all the way from bali ivy joeva hi ivy welcome to the podcast hey chris thanks so much for having me it's great to be here you said to me you said that's your professional name you have a different last name what's your full last name well, of course, that's a secret. No, I'm kidding. So my, my legal last name is Gullickson. I was born Ivy Gullickson, um, but it's kind of a long Norwegian last name. So I went with my middle name for my work. Okay. Okay. Ivy uh, Joeva, we will move on and we're going to talk a little bit today to my fitness people, my health people, the personal trainers, people who just love to exercise. And I would like to start off by talking about fertility, specifically infertility now i did see on one of your websites you mentioned before that 15 percent of u.s um, uh, people are infertile is is that true well yeah i mean it's really shocking and horrifying numbers that we have today and yeah um according to some statistics that is the case and the reason is multifactorial But what I think it really comes down to is our toxin exposure. So a woman today is exposed to the amount of chemicals in one month that our grandmother's generation, a woman in her time, would have been exposed to in their entire lifetime. So these are chemicals that are known endocrine disruptors, which means that they disrupt the hormonal system. They interfere with the delicate balance of hormones that's necessary to maintain a healthy menstrual cycle, which is the basis for fertility. And not only that, but they also interfere with the quality of our cellular health. So they cause oxidative stress in the body, which we have a very high degree of today. And that's what causes processes of aging that diminish the quality of all of our cells, including sex cells that may are reproductive cells that make the egg and make the sperm. So Nicholas Kristof, who's actually a really well-renowned journalist with the New York Times, wrote a phenomenal article very recently, I believe it was last week or the week before, about declining sperm counts worldwide mm-hmm. and how this is tied to toxins in our environment. So for decades now, we've been really looking at the female side of infertility. Mm-hmm and how toxin exposure in plastics, in pesticides, in genetically modified foods, household cleaning chemicals, body care products, it's just literally we're saturated in these chemicals. We've been seeing that, but we've really neglected the male side Mm -hmm. and how these toxins really affect the virility and fertility of men as well. So when someone goes and gets tested, so when a couple you know, wants to have a family and um, they're, they're, not, they're not getting pregnant and they go and they see the doctor, 
Do doctors test men and women for infertility or do they always test women? Well, unfortunately, oftentimes in the fertility clinics, it is still pretty woman-centric. The really cutting-edge fertility clinics are now looking to men because they are, after all, 50% of the equation. Um, but it's something that's been overlooked for a long time. So it's definitely something that I think it's also a mental shift that we have to start thinking because I think we've been conditioned to believe that women's fertility declines as we age, which can be the case, mm-hmm. but the, the same is also true for men. And it's also really important to remember that our biological age is not the same thing as our chronological age. So in other words, I might be chronologically in my late 30s, but biologically, if I take really care of my do really good care of my body, the quality of my cells, the quality of my eggs might be on a level of someone in their 20s and vice versa. Somebody much younger might actually be chronologically younger, but biologically um, be showing signs of diminished fertility that would be equivalent to someone of, a, of you know, a decade her senior. That, that, that is mind blowing for some people. Um, it's a bit different for me just to hear that working with with men in the strength training world, sometimes they go and get blood work and then they come back and they say to me, hey, here's my blood work. It says A, B and C. And then all of a sudden I take a look and I'm like, you, you have no you have no sperm. <laughs> and they might be like, well, yeah, like I got to stay off, you know, certain supplements or anabolics until my sperm count goes back up. And to me, I'm like, that doesn't sound good. And then I started realizing that it's probably a lot more prominent in in young males who would use things like certain supplements or anabolics that would mess up, you know, their sperm count. And I've never heard anyone talk about, oh, it also could be males, whether it's things they're doing in their recreational life and or toxins or toxicity loads in their body or chronological age versus biological age. Is there ways to tell, like, you know, what what is your biological age versus your chronological age? Absolutely. So there's a number of signs that we can look at. And, you know, like I said, it really reflects the quality of your overall health. So one of the factors that really influences male fertility is testosterone levels in the body and certainly being active, having good muscle tone, maintaining a healthy body weight. You can pretty much see visually if a man has good levels of testosterone, you'll feel it in his energy, you'll feel it in his posture, you'll feel it in his presence, his muscle tone. Um, whereas someone who's accumulated excess weight is being, living a sedentary lifestyle, those kinds of things, you'll start to see there's just not as much, um, virility there, right? Mm -hmm. They might start having problems like, um, you know, difficult sexual difficulties without getting too graphic. So those are some of the symptoms that you would see, um, fatigue. (laughs) <laughs> What's that? Yeah, it, thank you. Dysfunction. Yeah, <laughs> thank pretty you. sure you everyone it. listening is going to be over the age of fifteen on this podcast. Okay, so we're going to go there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, if you look at the quality of your skin, that's another indicator. You can you can actually visually see is this someone whose cellular health is intact? Mm-hmm. Is your hair graying? Right. So that's not to say that someone who has gray hair can't have a high degree of fertility, they certainly can. But the same lifestyle factors that influence our overall health is what influences our fertility. And this goes for both oxidative stress that causes premature aging, as well as toxin exposures. So some of the most important buffers 
for these problems are things like antioxidants in our diet. So eating a diet that's really rich in plant foods. And we've really banged that drum for a long time now about what we eat. So a lot of people are, I think, overly fixated on what they're eating without recognizing that the other really critical piece to this is how was your food grown? Mm -hmm. Because a carrot is not a carrot. Mm -hmm. The number of antioxidants in that carrot, the, the, the micronutrient quality of your food is not just the actual generic food that you happen to be eating. It's also what was the soil that this food was grown in? Mm -hmm. Were there chemical additives to the soil? Was there pesticides sprayed on it? Is it genetically modified that, that makes these, you know, giant strawberries the size of your fist mm -hmm. without really any vitamin C or micronutrients, much less the important polyphenols and flavonoids and antioxidants that protect cellular health. Mm -hmm. I, I know exactly what you mean by the strawberries. I worked on a farm when I was a young guy. And um, quick story about that. They said one day, they said, you're going to farm A. There was three three fields, A, B, and C for strawberries. We're picking strawberries. They said, you're going to A today. And I had done B and I had done C. So we go there for the whole day, you pick strawberries. I go to field A and the crop was gone. Like it was missing. There was barely any strawberries there. And the ones that we could find were very small, um, hard to even sell. So we did about half a day. I came back to the main farmer and I said, something's wrong with that crop. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. We just didn't get the spray down in time. I said, what? He said, we didn't spray that field in time. The other two got the spray. And the other two you're buying, you're getting strawberries, you know, like the size of tennis balls. And I remember being, I was like 15 years old, not knowing a lot about health, but I knew that wasn't right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think those of us that haven't actually worked on a farm, it's a real revolutionary concept to grasp of actually thinking about how our food was grown. But like for you, once you've actually seen it with your own eyes and frankly tasted the difference, mm -hmm. I was in someone's garden um, before I left the States a couple months ago and had a boysenberry like out of their garden, or it wasn't a boysenberry, it was a blackberry. Mm -hmm. And it was like this taste explosion in your mouth, like the most incredible dessert, all these rich, Pro flavor profiles you just would you could never manufacture that in in a flavoring i'd never tasted it anything like that and you know i i tend to shop at farmers markets and eat organic food and she said yeah those those are flavonoids that you're tasting those are the antioxidants that give these plant foods their color and their flavor profiles mm -hmm. so if you're getting something from the supermarket that's been shipped from miles and miles away and is picked out of season, picked before it's ripe, you know, not only is it not going to taste as good or look as good, it's also not going to be as nourishing for your mm -hmm. body. And I realize that this is a really privileged conversation to have. So not everybody has access to yes. in-season locally grown food. I do realize that. And at the same time, I think it's part of our responsibility as privileged people to support small family farms so that this food can become more available to everyone because it really is a birthright. Mm -hmm. uh, tomatoes specifically. I mean, I remember my, my dad once said to me, he's like, don't even bother buying uh, tomatoes anymore. And I said, why? And he said, they're, they're not tomatoes. I don't know what they are, but they don't taste like tomatoes. I don't like them anymore. And he was just referring to when he was a young guy and the flavor was one thing. And now the tomatoes that he would eat at the superstore, it's not the same at all. Yeah. It's so sad, isn't it, Chris? I mean, I, I totally empathize with your dad and I didn't have the fortune of growing up on a farm, but 
sometimes I taste a tomato and I'm like, what is this? It's like mm -hmm. cardboard. No wonder yeah. people don't want to eat vegetables because they're used to eating things that are pump full of fillers and artificial flavors and artificial fats and sugars and salt. And so we've, we've conditioned our taste buds to think that we need all this stuff because we've, we've actually lost touch with real food and what that actually is. Because even if we're quote unquote eating healthy, these fruits and vegetables, the fruits and vegetables that we're buying don't taste the way they were meant to taste. And they're mm -hmm. certainly not doing for our bodies what we could. Mm -hmm. And once you start to not only taste that difference, but feel that difference from eating real locally grown in season, regeneratively grown food, it's like a chemical high. You don't need drugs anymore. You don't need supplements anymore. It's, it's just, it's a natural high. There's no other way to put it. And, and your fertility is certainly going to reflect that. Ivy, you mentioned about toxins and toxicity, and we talked a little bit about food. Where else would people be exposed to high levels of, of toxicity? Like what is high amounts of toxicity? Well, you name it, Chris, we're exposed that way. So let's start with, I like to, I like to look at what's going in our body, mm -hmm. what's going on our body, what's around our body, mm. right? So food obviously goes in our body. We touched on that. It's also the way you're preparing your food. So you also have to look at the packaging in your food. For example, BPA is an additive in a lot of cans, um, canned foods. So you want to stay away from that. Um, if your food, again, is packaged in plastic or if you're drinking water out of plastic bottles, that leaches right into your food. Certainly if you're cooking in any kind of plastic, and this includes things like silicone utensils. So silicone spatulas have gotten really popular, which are better than straight up plastic, but it's still a plastic derivative. Mm -hmm. So it is a terrible idea to cook and leave. You know, I see people leaving like their silicone ladle in a pot of chili on a stove. Mm -hmm. No es bueno. <laughs> Take that out. Put it on the spoon rest because heat, of course, causes these chemicals to leach into the food. So anything coated in Teflon, the nonstick cookware, those are chemicals that are going to leach into your food. Um, you definitely want to replace all cookware with stainless steel. If you need to use nonstick, nonstick ceramic is a good idea. Cast iron mm -hmm. is a great thing to cook with because especially for menstruating or women of childbearing age, then you're getting that extra iron oh. from your cooking. Didn't know that. So, that's a yeah, nice so for anyone. That's really helpful, especially for women, because women, it, anemia is very common mm -hmm. during pregnancy just because your blood volume has to double. Mm -hmm. So I always suggest that's an easy swap, like start to cook in cast iron and then you're automatically getting that. Um, that that's good. I, I take friends that donate blood all the time. And what ends up happening is every time I, I, I grab a female, it's usually petite. She's anemic. They're always anemic, anemic. They say you need to eat more yeah. green vegetables or eat more meat or something. But hey, maybe now I can suggest cast iron pans for their cookware. Absolutely. It's a good one. So so that goes into a lot of the sources of the toxins that go in our body, the ones that we ingest. What goes on our body? Things like body care products, lotions, soaps, body wash, shampoos, conditioners, makeup, sunscreen has chemicals in it, um, conventional sunscreen that kills coral reefs, straight up kills the coral reefs. So imagine what that's doing to your microbiome on your skin, which goes straight into your bloodstream. 
So you're saying okay, that so like when people swim in the water, it comes off their skin and then kills the coral reefs? Yep. Oh. Yep. And the manufacture of these sunscreens, these chemicals, um, here in Bali, where I currently live, they're actually banned. Some of these chemicals are actually banned here, the avobenzones, those kinds of things. So zinc, a natural mineral-based non-nanoparticle zinc sunscreen is just as effective, protects against UVA and UVB rays. So that's a good option. Um, but you really want to be avoiding phthalates. You want to be avoiding parabens in all your products. Um, toothpaste can also have microbeads. Mm -hmm. So look up microbeads and look up where this is in your shampoos, in your toothpaste. So when we use these products and we rinse things like body wash, things like shampoos, things like toothpaste, those microbeads now go off our body and straight into the water table. And they wind up in not only in the soil and the food we grow and the water we drink, but also into the ocean mm -hmm. where microplastics are then found in fish and shellfish. So there was actually a study coming out of Harvard that tested shellfish and in 100% of the samples tested, 100% of the shellfish tested positive for microplastics in things like oysters, in things like clams and mussels. So that when you're eating these super mineral rich foods, I mean, oysters were previously one of the optimal fertility superfoods because they had all this zinc in them, which is mm. excellent for our reproductive cells like sperm and like the quality of our eggs. But if you're now getting an endocrine disruptor on the level of microplastics, when you're eating this food, that's obviously really canceling out a lot of the benefits. So is there, is we need to start. Way, sorry, I'm just, um, yeah. is there a way to tell? So everything that you're saying, everyone's probably doing. What I mean is like everyone's probably using, um, you know, plastics or not using cast iron or they're eating sell, uh, shellfish. So let's say the majority of people might have higher toxicity levels than they're aware of. Is there tests that can be done, like uh, like a blood test, like C-reactive protein? Would that be spiked if your toxic levels are high? Or is there other indicators you could tell besides just being infertile? Well, you could certainly go to a functional medicine doctor and get a full profile run, your full hormonal profile. You can test all kinds of toxins in your body that way. But like you said, Chris, we're all being exposed to this all the time. Mm -hmm. So what a test shows and what are you actually going to do about it doesn't really change what we all need to be doing to protect our health. Um, and on the topic of these microplastics, I also just want to mention another factor of what goes on our body is actually our clothing. Mm -hmm. So did you know that fibers like rayon, polyester, lycra, spandex, so much of what our sportswear and yoga attire are made out of are actually microfibers, AKA microplastics, that when washed, when we wash them, these microfibers also go into the water table. So that's also what's winding up when you see the contamination of plastics in shellfish. It's, it's not only from plastic in the ocean and these microbeads that I referred to in our cosmetic products and body care products, it's also our clothing. So we also need to start to be mindful of using sustainable and regenerative clothing from natural fibers like hemp, like bamboo, like organic cotton, mm -hmm. um, and, and start to be looking at our alternatives of, of really creating these lifestyle shifts from the, the ground up to demand that companies stop 
producing this because we just need to take a hard line and just stop it with with so 90% 90% of my listeners probably have lululemon so it's time to get rid of I'm that. I'm not Moses coming down the mountain I you know oh, I, I love understand. lululemon I understand but I'm, I wearing, also, I'm wearing an under armor sweater right now I'm just going to cover that logo up over here Yeah I mean I just think and there there's some wonderful companies doing wonderful work to really um create sustainable environmental mm-hmm. impact so um, Patagonia is one that's a B Corp, which means that they have to undergo really rigorous protocol to make sure that their environmental impact is actually a net positive impact. Mm-hmm. So I really do think that we have a lot of power as consumers to give feedback and to mm-hmm. vote with our dollars and say, hey, I'm not going to buy this just because it's cheaper. And I know that it's going to be trash for me and trash in the ocean. And I think, I think the most important thing, and if, if listeners take one thing away from our chat today, I really want to reframe our concept of health and facilitate this understanding, this awareness that we as people, as individuals can only be as healthy as our environment, as the environment around us, as the air we breathe, as the water we're drinking as the soil our food is grown in because that is actually what we're taking in mm-hmm. whether it's through breath whether it's through touch whether it's through eating or drinking that's what's becoming our bodies that's what's becoming ourselves and so if we really want to take fitness and wellness and health to the next level we have to start to look to our surroundings there's mm-hmm. there's no other way around it so just to to finish up on your question of of toxin exposure looking to our surroundings that's where we get into things like air fresheners and i want to say quote unquote air fresheners because there's nothing fresh about these glad plugins and what are they called glade and you know this kind of crap any any kind of artificial fragrance that you're putting into your environment is for sure containing chemicals that are toxins and endocrine disruptors no question chemicals in dry cleaning chemicals and cleaning products, the bleach, the, I mean, all pretty much ubiquitously. So when you're spraying Lysol, when you're using Clorox, the wipes, the sanitizers, and with COVID, we've just, you know, exponentially increased our use of all of this. And a really established, you know, really established medical professionals are saying, Hey, let's, let's take a step back. Like, yes, you should wash your hands. We all know how to practice good hygiene to support our immunity, but these wipes and these sprays, this is just disrupting our microbiome. All this antibacterial products is just destroying our microbiome, which is actually the basis of our immune system. Mm -hmm. So we really want to stay away from all of that. And then there's things like paint, there's things like varnish, furniture. So your furniture can actually off gas a lot of these toxic chemicals as well. So again, looking at what we're buying in terms of what we put in our homes, not only in terms of furniture and paint and the the nuts and bolts that we decorate with, but also how are we cleaning our homes and is it cleaning or is it spraying toxins around? Mm -hmm. You you seem to be like a well-rounded individual uh, on the topic. Your household, your your go-tos, what are some simple things that you do at home to minimize toxic load in your lifestyle? Well, I love to um, point people, the Environmental Working Group publishes several guides that are extremely helpful. So if you go to the Environmental Working Group's website, they have a guide for 
green cleaning products, safe cleaning products that you can get. There's a lot of fantastic brands out there. I, you know, I have no affiliation with any of this, but just a couple that I can name off the top of my head are Seventh Generation is really great. Um, Dr. Bronner's, you can use that soap on literally everything from your hair to your body. So it's a great mm -hmm. one to travel with. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to get fancy and you want to actually check the products that you use, they have a, a safe list and you can actually get your products rated right there on the environmental group working group site. And they also publish a clean 15 and a dirty dozen every year. And the clean 15 are the fruits and vegetables that even if they're grown um, conventionally, are generally safer. So they're less likely to contain um, toxic amounts of pesticide residue, whereas the dirty dozen are foods that at all costs you really want to avoid getting conventional and you want to, if they're not available organic, just forego. I'm going to guess pesticides. strawberries are on that dirty dozen after the ones I saw. <laughs> they usually are. You're, yeah. You would be absolutely right about that. Is that because they're more porous? I think it's because they grow close to the ground. It could be something to do with porous too. A lot of times fruit, foods on the clean 15 will be foods with an actual peel, mm -hmm. like avocados or bananas or oranges where you can actually take the peel off. Yeah. But again, what you want to think about is not just toxicity when it comes to food, but why are we eating? We're mm -hmm. eating to nourish our bodies. And so even if there isn't toxic levels of chemicals, was this food grown in soil that had a high enough nutrient content to support the health of our body. So when the soil is stripped of its nutrients through things like chemical fertilizer and monocropping, and we're not using farming practices to put those nutrients back into the soil, you're gonna be eating things that aren't really, you know, it's, it's certainly better than a processed package of something, but. Mm -hmm not not ideal and so the, the best thing people can do is go to their local farmers market if you have a local farmers market and i know this is tough especially in the winter time in parts mm -hmm. of the world where there might not be a lot growing um but this is where we can really look to our ancestors of what they did during harvest what did they do they put things up they put them in jars they fermented foods fermented foods are a powerhouse for our gut microbiome Mm -hmm. And the gut microbiome, like we talked about, not only is the basis of immunity, but it also is the basis of our ability to pull nutrients from our food to, to get the maximum value from mm -hmm. the food we eat. And so in this way, they're also a really critical component of fertility. Yeah, I think one of the, the pivots that was made, so where I am in Canada, I'm in Ontario, is uh, a lot of the farmers and farmer markets have pivoted to delivery services because of covid so instead mm -hmm. of going to where they would be to pick stuff up you can order online and then there's a lot of these new companies just popping up where they're, they're offering that as organic um, services to be delivered to your door so you know a little bit of adversity over here with covid but there's a little bit of opportunity at the same time for some people oh that's great to hear yeah i really recommend people talk to their farmers you know, and, and most farmers are so passionate about sharing, hey, here's what we do to control pests. Ask, what do you do to control pests? What do you do to fertilize the soil? Um, and you really want to be, you know, look up the principles of regenerative agriculture. And you really want to be hearing as much of that as possible in the farms that you choose to support. And regenerative agriculture takes organic to another level. Mm -hmm. So organic is just a baseline um, kind of minimal standards of what we ideally don't want 
in our food. But then regenerative agriculture is all about how can we farm in a way that's actually putting nutrients back into the soil mm -hmm. to increase the nutrient quality in our food. And also the really exciting thing about regenerative farming is that by putting this, these nutrients back into the soil, we're actually drawing carbon down out of the atmosphere mm -hmm. and wait for this, Chris, cause it's going to blow everybody's mind. It's actually our hope for helping to reverse climate change. So when we're thinking about not only our health, but the health of our children, our children's generation and the, and the world, the planet that our children are going to inherit, that we're going to be giving to them when we're gone, eating this way can actually help protect the planet for them. Now that's a powerful message right there. When, when you're doing that with the, the soil, how do, how do farmers do that? Do they have livestock on there or is it they, they don't have livestock and it's just fruits and vegetables? Yeah, so regenerative agriculture can absolutely include livestock. As a matter of fact, um, buffalo were native to the Americas, you know, before, before colonialization um, when native tribes were on the land and it was the buffalo that created really nutrient-rich soil because of the way they would migrate and the way their hooves would kind of naturally till the soil in a really healthy way and then they would poop and pee and that puts those nutrients back into the soil mm -hmm. so grasslands is actually something that even though it's not growing food for us to eat except for the the if you're eating the animal foods on those lands um those are actually really huge they're, they're called carbon sinks mm -hmm. in the sense that they help draw carbon down out of the atmosphere and really help protect us against the effects of the climate crisis well, I can attest to that specifically, um, growing up, working on a farm, eating the food from there compared to the grocery store. Uh, my dad hunted when I was younger and, you know, eating moose meat there compared to the grocery store, completely different, completely different. Yeah. Even even eggs. Eggs was the biggest one for me. When you eat a, an egg from the farmer's market, the shell is so soft, right? And the yolk is so rich in color and the flavor, you don't need anything. And I'll have some clients who like to flavor their food with a bunch of stuff but the reality is they're just eating stuff from the grocery store that isn't very flavorful anyway and i understand why they'd want to be adding all these other things to it yeah it's it's such a best kept secret and it's so important for people to know because so many people didn't grow up seeing it in front of their face like you did and so it's such a gift that you have to be able to share that because it's so true i think it's really important that people know there's such a loud debate right now in the health world. And this has been raging for probably decades now about to eat meat, to not to eat meat. Should you be vegan? Should you be keto? Should you be paleo? I mean, it's just, there's so much noise. It's hard to even think straight in that conversation. Uh -huh. And I think the really important point that this all hinges on is it's not, again, what you're eating. It's how was this grown? So meat is not meat. Like you said, like that moose that was out in the wild living its whole life, that's a healthy mm -hmm. animal. You put that in your body, imagine the difference between that effect, and let's contrast that with the way 99% of animal foods are raised, conventionally grown animal foods are raised on these um, operations called CAFOs, conventional animal feeding operations, where mm -hmm. they pack thousands 
of animals, thousands of cows into these tiny spaces where they can't even turn around or sit down. There's not space. And why is this a problem? Because they're pooping on each other. Mm-hmm. They're, getting inf- they're getting skin infections. I don't want to gross people out and get too graphic, but you get the point. They're now needing antibiotics because they're full of diseases. They're now needing artificial growth hormones to make them bigger because they haven't done any body movement their whole life. They're being fed genetically modified foods, which is full of pesticides mm-hmm. in, in concentrated amounts. And now that's going into the meat. Mm-hmm. And so you eat those foods. That's a totally different thing. Mm-hmm. So it almost becomes animal. irrelevant. It's a different, it's a different animal altogether. Yeah. So it, it becomes kind of silly to debate, like, should you eat meat? Should you not eat meat? I mean, who wants to eat that? If you actually think of the flesh that you're consuming, it's diseased flesh. Who yeah. wants to do that? So yeah. it's not a moral conversation. It's not a conversation about to eat meat or not to eat meat. That's everybody's between them and them. Mm-hmm. It's let's look at like, the health of what you're actually putting into your body. Where did yeah. it come from? How was then, it grown? How did it live? And I've never, I haven't seen, read, or heard many people discuss the topic of let's let's do this comparative study of nutrition and let's compare organic, grass-fed, you know, meat versus grocery store, and then see how the health of an individual is different. But I can tell one story. The first time my wife ever went to donate blood, she sent me a message. And she was just looking her. She, I don't know what time of day she went, but it, the best of the best weren't there donating. And you know, she's looking around the room, and she sends me a text. She goes, "I wouldn't want any of these people's blood." And it's kind of the same thing if someone's entire life they don't take care of their health, right? And then imagine getting their blood. But the reality is, if if you want to be an optimal human being, what you're saying, and I agree with you, is what are you eating? More importantly, where is it coming from? What kind of food is that? Yeah, I think that's such a great example with the blood. I mean, what a perfect illustration. Like, would you want to put someone's blood in your body who was full of diseases? And, you know, this this isn't something that I'm making up. We've had mad cow. We've had swine flu. I mean, how many of those are just the extreme examples where you have people dying. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but we have epidemics on the level of cancer, on the level of heart disease, on the level of all kinds of physical ailments that are directly linked to our diets. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the really sad lie we've been told by, frankly, the, the farm borough and these industries that have a vested interest in keeping us purchasing their conventionally grown crap, we've been told, oh, we just have to eat a healthy diet by the food guide pyramid. Oh. I don't know if that's what you guys have in Canada, but it's, you know, I mean, don't get me started about that, right? We really have to be looking at like, okay, what is the actual flesh that I'm eating? So from what my understanding, um, over here we have the Canada's Food Guide. The Canada's Food okay. Guide originated as a way to ration food during the war. Like that's where it came from. It, it was like, we have X amount left. You get this, you get this, you get this. And then shortly yeah. after World War I, um, the farming industry started to boom. And the farming industry said, hey, hey, government, if you help us a little bit, we'll help you a little bit. So if you start telling people that they need to have eight to 12 servings of grains, and here's the list of grains we make, we sell more, we give you more money, and they're all good for it. And then eventually it just turned into this this, this billion dollar industry that had 
it just forgot the whole concept of rationing out food to keep, have people survive. And at no point was there anything regarding health. It's changed a lot since. And it was just yeah. changed last year where the basis of it here in Canada is actually much more fruits and vegetables rather than grains. And I mean, Kraft peanut butter is no longer on the list, but it once was as a source of protein, which is hilarious. But yeah, it's a bit different over here. Well, it's good to hear we're making some progress. Agreed, agreed. Um, I think in, in the States, we shifted from the food pyramid to my plate, I want to say last time I okay. checked. But again, we just what we really need to, to incorporate is let's talk not just about what, but how, mm -hmm. how, how this food is grown, where is it coming from? I think those are really the critical things to mm -hmm. look at when it comes to diet. Because at this point, we all know, most of us know, even if we don't practice it, we need to be eating more fresh fruits and vegetables. We need to be cutting back on processed foods. There's a lot of debate in the nutrition industry about what the optimal diet is, mm -hmm. but there's universal truths that we all agree on. Mm -hmm. I think there, there's some outliers, like there was a book written about claiming lectins are a problem in plant foods, but those are really fringe fringe perspectives. I think the majority of the Those are at extremes too, direction. right? Yeah, at, at absolutely. Extremes. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. um, you, you'd know this, um, correct me if I'm wrong, apple seeds are poisonous at super high dosages. Exactly. But if you just swallow them when you're eating an apple, no one's getting sick. Right. And that's the thing about lectins. They're actually antioxidants. So, you know, everybody wants to sell a book. Everybody wants to sell a method. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to also remember, because we, we can be so kind of... Um, what's the word species centric in our outlook. Mm -hmm. And we're actually animals, we're mammals. And so our bodies know what we need to thrive. When you taste that fresh strawberry straight off the vine, there's no way to lie yourself around that. No commercial, no propaganda. Mm -hmm. Watch, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just, it's, we, we need to start getting in touch with our nature that way, our primal nature. And I think that's one of the things that body movement really helps with, especially if you're able to exercise outdoors and really feel your own connection to nature with your feet on the ground, breathing that fresh air, you start to develop a sense of self-trust. And so you're not going to outsource that intuition to the propaganda machines that we're all mm -hmm. prone to these days. Mm-hmm. Ivy, we've talked uh, nutrition and we've talked um, toxicity in relation to fertility. Could you speak a little bit on, on movement and exercise like you, you were just about to go to? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one that can really, I find fertility for women in particular, also probably for men, can really hinge on this because exercise can either be a source of positive stress on the body in the sense that it makes our bodies stronger it helps oxygenate our reproductive organs bring blood flow to the uterus um you know all of these things are obviously going to be hugely beneficial to fertility in terms of healthy helping us maintain a healthy body weight but for women if there's an unhealthy relationship to exercise where we're over exercising pushing our bodies um and this can certainly be exacerbated if combined with other environmental stressors like mm. lack of proper nutrition, toxin exposure. So they all kind of work together and compound each other. 
um, that can obviously be a detriment to fertility. So the, the indicator that would tell us that exercise levels are at a healthy level is, is a woman cycling? Is her menstrual cycle happening every month? Is it on time? Is she ovulating? Because if a woman's body is under stress, whether that's mental stress, whether that's emotional stress, whether that's physical stress, the reproductive system responds by just shutting down because it's an optional thing. We actually don't need to have babies to survive the same way we need to um, be able to digest our food to survive. Like those are necessary functions. We need to breathe. We need our heart beating. We don't need to be having a period and ovulating every month. Mm -hmm. So if there's a stress, our bodies don't really distinguish whether we're in a time of war or famine, in which case it would not be adaptive from an evolutionary perspective to be pregnant and having a baby. So the body just kind of puts that whole system on hold and says, okay, we're not going to do that now until the stress is removed and the body comes back to a sense of safety. And then the body can say, okay, we'll start cycling again for you. Mm -hmm. So I find, you know, women who are at a lower body mass index than ideal, that's where exercising especially can start to tip the balance. Um, we also see female athletes oftentimes will lose their period. Not always, but it can be the case. So the period is really kind of the barometer for how is our exercise in relation to our overall health and stress levels in the body. Mm -hmm. Men, um, men have a much higher tolerance for, I should say, quote unquote, over exercising. So you know, you, you hear people like ultra marathoners who are still perfectly fertile as men. So I think for men, there's actually more of a risk in the under exercising realm where if men are accumulating excess body weight and it's compromising their testosterone. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing men want to watch out for with exercising, if you're, if you're actively trying to conceive is the temperature of the scrotum. So if you're on something like a stationary bike or even cycling for long distances and the temperature of the scrotum is elevated for consistent periods, that can also diminish sperm quality and motility as well I in the short it. term. I knew it. And I knew it. My younger days is a hot bath before date night. I knew it. Uh it was <laughs> Don't use it as birth control, people. Definitely <laughs> not something to rely on. But um, if you're trying to get pregnant, it might be something to look at for sure. Okay, so you said um, for, for females having a consistent cycle, a regular cycle, and for men, yeah. be healthy first, and then to stay off the bike too long for, for heat purposes. Yeah. Um, exactly. With women and um, with exercise, if their BMI gets too low or their body weight gets too low based on height ratio, their body fat percentage is probably going to drop as well. So you would say that someone with very low body fat percentage, it can affect uh, their cycle, yes? Absolutely, because... Estrogen, which is one of the really critical hormones to maintain balance in a female reproductive system, we actually need a certain amount of body fat and to ingest a certain amount of dietary fat to support estrogen levels. So if you have too much body fat, that can cause something called estrogen dominance, which is a really common um, hormonal imbalance, which is also contributed in to by the xenoestrogens in our environment that mimic estrogen. So xenoestrogens in all the toxic compounds we talked about, things like plastics, things like air freshener, things like these body care products. Um, but fat levels on your body and dietary levels can also be a factor in terms of the amount of estrogen that our bodies are making. 
Um, as for exercise prescription, is there any uh, go-tos that you would say to stay for, like to thrive for or to stay away from, say for females, who might be on the cusp of overtraining? So an example, would you say, okay, if you're going to do any interval work, stay under 85% max heart rate, or if you're doing any workouts, keep the durations, you know, less than 40 minutes. Are there any like simple safe guidelines you might want to give someone, like I said, who is struggling to have, uh, struggling to get pregnant, they're already probably low BMI, um, any go-tos for exercise? Yeah, well, I actually think this is a really deep question, Chris, because I think we have to go a little bit deeper and look at our relationship to exercise. When we're talking about exercise in relationship to female health and specifically female reproductive health, mm -hmm. because the technical answer is gonna be wildly different based on the individual, right? So Serena Williams might be able to exercise 10 hours a day and play tennis and do conditioning and do fine because that's what her body's used to. She knows how to eat to adapt to that. She's got her sleep dialed right in all the factors are working in her favor, right? Someone else might be doing a 45 minute run every morning before work and really, really taxing their bodies based off of that. Mm -hmm. So that I just want to give that kind of overall view. I also think that it's important to look at the actual nature of our menstrual cycle and get in touch with that, which is something that women often don't think about unless you're actually bleeding. So we all know when we're having a period, but most of us kind of tune out of our cycle for the other three quarters of our cycle. And these are really critical things to be aware of because it's going to tell us what our body needs, not only nutritionally in each period, but also in terms of our lifestyle, including our exercise. So for example, while we're menstru menstruating, that's a time where the body is losing a lot of nutrients in the form of blood. It actually takes a lot of energy to have a period. And so that's a time where I like to think of it in terms of your internal season, like an internal season of winter. And what do animals do in the winter? They hibernate, they rest. And so to give yourself those three, four, five, seven days to listen to your body and rest before maybe becoming more active in the follicular phase. And then maybe in the ovulatory phase, you have your full energy and that's where you really want to push it. Or maybe when you're ovulating, you actually notice a dip in your energy because of the energy that it takes to release an egg. And then in the luteal phase, you might notice, okay, my body needs more, more gentle stretching or my body needs a walk in nature to really help balance the hormones. So I think for women, Unfortunately, or fortunately, there's just no way around this need to actually learn how to listen to and trust our bodies and, and actually interpret our body signals that we're getting from our body in real time. I think that's a really critical component of fertility to not think that we can bypass or outsource that with some kind of <clears throat> generic guideline mm -hmm. because it's just going to be so different, not only for each woman, but for each woman at various points in her life and for each woman at various points in any given cycle in that month, mm -hmm. um, because the, the balance of hormones is so delicate. And so we really need to be able to listen and pay attention the same way as a mother, you wouldn't just feed your baby 
this is, you know, you're getting this many cc's of formula at this time of day. And then this many, I mean, some people do that to try to train their baby, but that, that usually comes later. You definitely don't do that with a newborn. Yeah. The baby right? will you, tell you, they'll tell you. The baby will tell you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah, can pick I'm, I'm back talking off. to a dad. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> oh yeah, it's crying. Feed it. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. How it was. Um, I can piggyback off what you said. So if anyone's listening, it's not a bad idea to communicate with someone in charge of your fitness. So if you work out by yourself, what I'm hearing you say, Ivy, is listen to your body. Don't try to outsmart nature. Nature knows what's up. If you work with someone whether you have a coach, a strength conditioning coach, personal trainer, have the conversation. Over the years, I've had clients have the conversation with me. And they say, every, you know, this week, I'm weak. This week, I can't lift anything heavy. And I say, okay, that's fine. Says, You're on your cycle? Yeah, I am. So for some female clients, I will program an easy week. We call it recovery week. Or I have one lady specifically, she calls it her week week. We call it the week week. And then the week after is when she's at her all-time strongest. So we'll actually program the harder workouts the week after that. And then for some female clients, they don't, they're not affected at all. And then some have to take three days off work. I mean, as a personal trainer, and as a coach, I would have never been able to read a book on this. I would have never been able to accidentally stumble upon. It was just a communication that the clients were giving to me and we found some good successes with that, but they have to open the doors both ways. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think it's really important to be working with someone who understands the unique needs of the female body um, throughout the cycle. So I think we live in a culture where we've kind of been conditioned to believe no pain, no gain. And if you aren't feeling like exercising, just push your body, push your body. And Sometimes it can feel really good if you're feeling lazy and you're feeling lethargic. It can actually give you energy to get up, get moving. But I think we, I think we're intelligent enough to know the difference. And I think it's a matter of cultivating that self-trust and forming a relationship with the coach or trainer that you trust, who's going to have that conversation with you, not just from a top-down authoritative role, but also a process of inquiry to facilitate that trust in your own body and ask, how are you feeling today? What would feel good? Let's try this. Let's experiment. You know, I remember back when I used to do, um, I used to have private yoga clients and I will never forget this. I, I had a client who told me during a session, I'm feeling really tired today. I wanted to take it easy. Please, you know, let's do a really easygoing, lighter, lighter session. And in my mind, I interpreted that as, okay, she just needs to get over this hump. Mm -hmm. So I started out really slow, got her in the groove and then started ramping it up. And in the middle of the session, she started crying and she was like, Ivy, I told you I'm tired. I need you to go easy on me today. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment that I realized I have violated this woman's boundary. She communicated to me exactly what she needed, but I thought I knew better because mm -hmm. I was technically the trainer and I've had the experience of pushing my body and, and thinking I could do it. And it, 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 it was so profound for me. And this happened probably over 10 years ago now. But I think that as trainers and as teachers, we can only give someone else the compassion and the trust that we've learned how to cultivate with our own bodies and our own selves. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to work with people who 
cultivate that relationship with their own bodies and really encourage clients to do the same. Mm -hmm. I always say never stop learning because life never stops teaching. And sometimes the, you know, the best lessons we learn are from, you know, having to make a mistake at one point. So that was that was very nice of you to, to share that with you. And I'm glad that uh, yeah, some of our listeners got to hear that. I know your time is valuable and I don't want to spend all day taking it from you, but I I feel like we could talk all day about this stuff. <laughs> I, I know there was so many different avenues I wanted to go on um, with yeah. you. Um, but one thing that I want to kind of like talk about towards the end here is is this upcoming course that you have, um, this virtual interactive course. Would you mind talking to uh, some of the listeners here about this? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I'd love to. I'm, I'm so excited to share my upcoming course. It's called Jumpstart Your Fertility. So it's for those people who are just starting their journey of fertility, or really, maybe you've been at it for a while, but really want to get back to basics. So one of the things I've seen as a doula and fertility coach is people that sometimes spend months or even years going down, I call it the conveyor belt of fertility, you know, conventional fertility treatments, and they get the testing and they get the treatments. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But the problem is they're ignoring some of the basics sometimes. It's like we lose sight of the forest for the trees. And so in Jumpstart Your Fertility, you're going to get everyday lifestyle tools that you can use to boost your fertility naturally from nutrition, from going through your toxin exposure with a fine tooth comb. I call it the toxic exposure inventory. And we're going to clear all that out. And then it's also about getting into the mindset of fertility. So like we talked about, stress is the number one fertility killer. Mm. So we're all under stress. There's no way to avoid that. But how can we look at our sources of stress, our sources of physical stress, things like our quality of sleep, things like our blood sugar, how are we hydrating our bodies? What is our relationship to exercise? And then look at how are we living our lives? Are we living on this hamster wheel that society programs us into, which really facilitates an addiction to cortisol? Mm -hmm. So those of us that get through with a long day of work and we go straight onto our television or our computer or our cell phone, the body isn't having any of that regenerative processes that we need to really release the stress that's accumulated throughout the day and come back to a healthy baseline state that can support optimal fertility. So we look at all of that. I, I call it cultivating your fertile feminine flow for the ladies. <laughs> and, then, and then the final module is looking at this transformational rite of passage into motherhood. Because a lot of the time in our culture today, we think of becoming a parent or having another baby, kind of like accumulating an, another thing in this kind of materialistic culture that we're in. And as a parent, any parent knows that's just not the program you're signing up for. It's, it's really a monumental life change. Mm -hmm. And so in this module, we're going to look not only at the, the biggest barometer for our, for our fertility, which is like we talked about the health of our menstrual cycle and really getting in touch with the different phases of your cycle, getting familiar with each phase and what signifies a healthy phase, how to know if you're ovulating, a lot of women don't necessarily even know how to how to tell this or how to increase the chances. Of I didn't know. I didn't know you knew how to know. When, yeah, when we, when we well, planned our family. I was getting phone calls at work, honey. 
it's time. When's your break? Let's go. <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> I was like, how do you know? <laughs> yeah, so much of this has been shrouded in mystery. And, you know, it, it, it upsets me that even among fertility specialists, a lot of the times these doctors will tell women and couples, you know, as you age, your fertility declines and there's really nothing you can do about it. The number of eggs are going to decline and there's nothing you can do about it. The, the quality of your eggs are going to decline. You should have freezed your eggs. And it's a load of crock. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Of course you can change the quality of your eggs. Can you change the quality of your skin? Then you can change the quality of your eggs. There's cells in our bodies. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at that. And then in terms of this shift, I like to call it from maiden to mother. This is where we get into the deep psychology of fertility, because at the end of the day, it's not our conscious mind that drives our life, right? We all know this. It's, it's actually our subconscious mind, our unconscious mind. And how do we know what the unconscious mind, what's going on in the unconscious or the subconscious? That's what our bodies show us. So if the body is not getting pregnant, it doesn't matter how much you think you want to be pregnant the body's actually showing us something. Mm -hmm. And again, we live in this culture where we're taught to interact with obstacles by pushing through them and resisting them and just going further. But we can actually get further when it comes to fertility by pausing and really listening to the body and looking at, okay, what's going on under the surface here? What is my association with motherhood? Who was my motherhood role model? What's the overall balance of my life right now? And how would another baby fit into this? Or how would a first baby fit into this? How's it going to change my relationship? How's it going to change my social life? How's it going to change my work life? And so we go through a process of mapping this out in terms of visualization and getting crystal clear to start to integrate what's going on under the surface in our subconscious beliefs that, that are actually manifesting in our body and, and bring all of that into conscious light so that we can have our full selves um, prepared for this next leg of the journey with pregnancy. I think that is um, uh, so many golden nuggets there that people could use. I mean, myself in my mid thirties, when I talk to my parents about uh, people in my social circle who are trying and they're trying and they're not getting pregnant, my parents are like, what are you talking? Like, who who doesn't get pregnant like everyone got pregnant when we were when we were younger it was never it was never an issue and then working in the yeah. health uh, industry i'm seeing this so much more uh than than i'd like to than i think should be there so it's nice to hear a fresh voice um because i'll be honest with you not many people i've heard when they talk about fertility they talk about all these factors they might mm. say it's one thing oh you just you got you, you know you just got too much stress de-stress yeah. and you just said here's like 10 factors that you need to to work with to make your body ready for motherhood um so anyone who's listening i think that if you're in this this boat um i'll put in the show notes all the contact information for you um, for people who want to register for this course starting this spring i think it would only be beneficial for people you know who need it thank you so much chris yeah i i really saw that gap out there and i was really passionate about you know we're multi-dimensional beings we're not machines and I think in medicine in general, somehow that can be forgotten, particularly when it comes to fertility. So I really wanted to add in the holistic element of it because I've seen, I've seen it, you know, I think the classic story that we see all the time in the fertility world is the couple that tries and tries and tries. They spend tens of thousands of dollars on in vitro fertilization, give up 
adopt a baby and then get pregnant naturally. Yeah. Now, why, why is that so common that it's become a cliche? It's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's because there were other things going on under the surface other than mechanics, mm -hmm. other than um, things that could be tested in, in a test tube. Yes. You know, and, and those are the elements we want to also start to include in the process. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is a phenomenal way to, to end this conversation. And uh, I want to thank you formally for taking the time um, where you are to, to sit down with me. The beauty of technology. We're on the other side of the planet. We're having this mm -hmm. conversation. And this moment will never happen again. So I don't know about you, but I, I've sucked it in. This was great for me. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Wonderful time connecting with you, Chris. Thanks again for having me on the show. Yes, thank you as well. And for anyone listening, all the contact information I'll put in the show notes here, and you can get in contact with Ivy if you'd like to. And um, to everyone listening, um, stay safe, stay positive in life, and negative in COVID. <laughs> thank you, Ivy. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast, then your mission is to help other people please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.